0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, before uh, the sermon, I want to give a little bit of an update uh, on the situation with our facility. Uh, we mentioned a couple of a uh, couple weeks ago that the elders were going to be meeting with some senior folks in a denomination that is. Uh, interested in having us come into a space that they have open down uh, in Catonsville. Um, since that meeting, uh, we have also gotten uh, confirmation from our friends in the Methodist Church uh, that they would like us to stay here, um, whether it's uh, by leasing, continuing to lease, or purchasing, or some other such arrangement. Um, so at this point, it's nice to be wanted, uh, but then again, no, nobody's talked about numbers yet. So... <clears throat> uh, we were in a situation where uh, we're awaiting this week. My understanding is that the, the trustees of Pleasant Hill United Methodist, which owns this building, are going to be meeting to discuss uh, Stone Chapel and what their interests are specifically and priorities and so forth. So I uh, would uh, continue, ask you to continue to pray for us as elders as we go through the process of kind of discerning how we're supposed to respond to some of these offers. Uh, pray specifically for me as I'm the main person interacting with the leaders of these other congregations, uh, and uh, and pray this week that uh, as these uh, Methodist trustees get together that they would hear clearly from God about how they're supposed to steward this property that they now have responsibility for. Um, we are hoping at some point to be able to arrange a visit uh, to the uh, facility in Catonsville, which is the former St. Uh, Timothy's Church. It's on Ingleside Avenue in between Edmondson and Frederick Road, if you want to drive by it. Um, but uh, we're, we're trying to arrange uh, a time for folks uh, to visit and, and take a look at the, at the property. Ron and uh, Ann Jones and I got a chance to look at it a few weeks ago. Uh, so that's where we're at on that. Uh, a- again, if, you have, if you're aware of any facilities that uh, might be available that uh, have 5,000 square feet or more of usable space, I uh, would invite you to uh, contact either Bill Holiday or uh, Rob Hobson uh, with information on those, and uh, we'll run down every lead we get. So, so uh, we're in. Before we resume our series on the Book of Romans, we are doing a little mini-series here on the five marks of evangelicalism. A brief reminder of who we are, what it means for us to be not only believers, but this particular type of believers in Jesus Christ that we are. What? What it mean, where we fit on the family tree of the Christian church. And the distinct we're talking about today is probably the one that makes us the most obnoxious to our co-religionists. This is the one where most of our Catholic and Orthodox and uh, mainline Protestant brothers and sisters uh, find us to be especially irritating, which is... Usually known by the big name conversionism, but uh, for the sake of simplicity and the use of this mnemonic device that I will roll out, but not today, I'm talking about faith. And Exhibit A, right here.
1: Most people are not willing to take their stand for Christ. Most people are not willing to stand up and be counted when it comes to surrendering to Christ. I ask you tonight are you sure that you're a Christian? Are you sure that your sins are forgiven? Are you sure if you died, you'd go to heaven? Are you sure that you're ready to meet God? In the strictest sense of the term, I ask you tonight, are you a Christian? Are you sure of it? If I had a doubt in my heart tonight that I was ready to meet God, you couldn't drag me out of Madison Square Garden till I'd settled it. Make sure, give your life to Christ tonight. Come and receive him. All right. That's a Christian. Christ dwelling in the heart, a personal encounter with Christ, receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. That is a Christian. But how to live the Christian life? That's another thing. How to live the Christian life? All right. About 14, I think it was 14 years ago, I got married. For about two years, I wooed my wife. And I'll tell you, that was some doing to win her. I worked hard for two years. Finally, we stood up in front of the minister. Now I could have admired my wife, which I did, but I still wasn't married. I could have thought she was lovely and beautiful and believed in her, but that didn't make me married to her. I had to stand in front of the minister, and he said, "'Wilt thou have this woman to be thy wedded wife?' And I said, "'I will.'" And then he pronounced us man and wife. Then were we married, a public decision. I came publicly before a congregation of people with witnesses on every hand and took Ruth to be my wedded wife. I said I will. It was a matter of the will. Just believing in her wasn't enough. Just going and having Sunday dinner at her folks home wasn't enough. Just loving her wasn't enough. I had to say, I will. And just believing in Christ is not enough. The Bible says the devil believes in Christ. Just saying he's a wonderful person is not enough. Just going to Sunday dinner at the church is not enough. You must, by an act of your will, say, I will receive him as my own Savior and Lord. Have you done that?
0: Billy Graham took over Madison Square Garden for a hundred nights, among those uh, one evening when he had uh, Martin Luther King come up. His willingness to invite people who were not from the same fundamentals background of his made a lot of people suspicious of him from the right side. But from the left, there was plenty of objection during his time in Madison Square Garden. If you look back at the articles, you almost get this aspirational sense in the coverage in the Christian century, which is the mainline periodical, sort of the the propaganda organ of the mainline Protestant church. There's sort of this sense that the thing's going to die out and and fall away any minute, that that it's losing steam. The century, in fact, even sent an investigative reporter to try to dig up dirt on Billy Graham because they found this sort of thing to be very, very distasteful. This idea that people should have to convert, that they should have to, by some decision, choose to receive Christ. Now, Billy Graham was in a long line of this sort of thing, not only preaching this message, but uh, <clears throat> receiving the opprobrium of the more dignified among them. Jonathan Edwards got kicked out of his church in Northampton because he believed that simply being baptized didn't mean that you were, in fact, a genuine follower of Christ. And he wanted to uphold an expectation that people were genuine followers in his congregation. The folks did not like that and kicked him out of his grandfather's church John Wesley talked about his own experience of conversion. Even though he was an Anglican priest, it was when he had an experience of conversion, his brother Charles wrote in that song, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And we had there in the Second Great Awakening, back in the 19th century, all these tent revivals. Of course, some... Observed of these that at these tent tent revivals where you 'd get an evangelist who would come into town and set up a tent that 's why they called them tent revivals. People were not very creative back then <laughs> but you 'd have people come and they would camp out and, and, and for days they would come and, and hear preaching and they would hear uh, hymns and they would be invited to come forward and to receive Christ to become christians and people would stay there and camp out some. Wags suggested there were more souls conceived than saved during these revivals. But this is the sort of thing that has been going on. So Billy Graham, when he started out, wasn't obviously in Madison Square Garden, he was doing tent revivals of his own as a young evangelist, a young preacher. But this is the message of the revivalist, of the evangelist, that ye must be born again, that there is a need to decide for Christ, that you don't become a Christian by default, you don't get born into it. This, incidentally, is why New Hope and churches like ours generally practice adult rather than infant baptism. We believe that when a person comes to an age where he or she can Say genuinely that he or she has made a decision to follow Jesus, to be one of his disciples. That that is the time that we should baptize that person. We should signify their entry into the community of Jesus's followers. We have great respect for the traditions that practice otherwise, and many of us who were baptized as infants have not have chosen not to be baptized again as adults out of respect for that, but. That's why we and most evangelicals don't practice infant baptism. A few do in the more traditional, uh, that have more traditional backgrounds, Lutherans or uh, conservative congregationalists, Presbyterians, Anglicans. But we usually don't. Because we think that that can give the mistaken impression that you can be a cradle evangelical, that you can just be born and raised a Christian, and that, that that counts. But as Billy Graham said, simply admiring Jesus, simply loving him, simply going to Sunday dinner at church every week, doesn't cut it, as he said elsewhere. Just sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian, any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Where, I wonder, might we have gotten this idea? That conversion should be necessary. Where might we have gotten this idea? Jesus. Yes. Remember, when in doubt, the answer is Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> You'll remember from when we went through Matthew's Gospel, the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we, we read about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in chapter 4, and then starting verse 12, when Jesus heard that John, who was his advanced man, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, who Several hundred years before, it also served as Jesus' advance man. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the weight of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Isaiah is setting up the rationale for this in the first place, isn't he? This is a people who are living in darkness, a darkness that needs to be illuminated. They're living in the land of the shadow of death. that kind of land is one that would desperately need light and life. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, just be a good person and it's all going to be okay. From that time on, Jesus began to re- preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message was one of calling to repentance, calling to conversion, to rejecting your old way of life and to accepting the new one that God has for you. And we see this As he called his disciples, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Thank you, Matthew, for clearing that up. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At Once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They're in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. This is the pattern that we see in the Gospels. Jesus comes, calls people to follow him, and they do. Or they don't. Last Sunday night I was with Steve at Sinai, watching the Steelers lose badly. And of course, at every field goal and extra point, you had the guy there holding up the John 3.16 sign, right? And we hear about that, that verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But remember, this is a statement that's given in the context of Jesus' encounter with a man named Nicodemus. We read in John 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we know just from this that he is a person of some importance. He's got status in the community as a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. He is a religious leader, and therefore, with the way things worked out, he is a political leader. He's part of the council that is dealing with the Roman Empire and figuring out how to run Jerusalem and the areas around it and we know that he's a Pharisee. John tells us he's a Pharisee which means that he would have been somebody who was very zealous for Torah. He was somebody who was part of a renewal movement within Judaism. This is somebody who was really part of a revival movement within Judaism and so he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him, which is a kind of suitable and appropriate way for him to approach somebody who had earned the kind of reputation that Jesus had, very gracious for him to say these kinds of things. He he could easily have said things that were much, much less complimentary. And then Jesus replies with absolutely no diplomatic tact whatsoever. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God Unless he is born again, which is not what Nicodemus was expecting to hear. What do you mean? He said, How, how, can, how can somebody be born when he's already old? I mean, <laughs> obviously, you can't go back in your mother's womb a second time to be born. Jesus answered, Look, straight up, no one can enter the kingdom of God. "...unless he is born of water and the Spirit." Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Huh? Nicodemus asked. What? You're Israel's teacher? said Jesus. And you don't get this? Look, man, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen. But still, you're not accepting our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then are you going to believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn it, but he sent his Son to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the testimony. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is terribly impolite of Jesus to say. No? I mean, this is, this is a senior member of the community. This is a member of the Sanhedrin. This is a Pharisee. This is somebody with stature. And Jesus is saying, how on earth, you're Israel's teacher. How do you not know this? And he's talking about stakes like eternal life and eternal condemnation. It would appear that Jesus believes this message to be important and that he is not unwilling to convey that in very direct terms. You'd think if anybody would get a pass, it would be a guy like Nicodemus. I mean, he's zealous for the law, he's a leader in the Jewish community. But Jesus isn't having any of that. We read at the end of John's Gospel that he wrote all these things down about Jesus. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The implication being that if you don't, you will not. You look at what, how Matthew ends his gospel. He has the 11 disciples in Galilee on the mountain Jesus told them to go to. And he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. They've got a responsibility to draw people to repentance, to conversion. From what we read in the book of Acts, that's, that's what they did. The Beginning of Acts, we have this story. Jesus' disciples are huddled up in Jerusalem. They're not sure what's going on, but they know that they're in danger, and they know Jesus told them to stay there. And so everybody from the uh, Jewish world is there in Jerusalem for Pentecost, Shavuot, the feast at which the giving of Torah, the giving of the law, is remembered. And all of a sudden, as the story goes, in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we have all of these people starting to speak in these languages of the different people who are there. And they're like, these guys are unlettered rubes from east nowhere, Galilee. How do they know all this, these languages of these different people? But God gave them the ability to. And everyone's saying, what, what's going on? And other people said, oh, it's just drunk. They're just drunk. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Give them a few hours. Maybe they will be. No, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy What? Men of Israel, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, Freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. David, yet another of his advanced men, said about him: I saw the Lord always before me, before because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence. Well, my brothers, Peter says, I can tell you confidently, the patriarch David died. He was buried. In fact, his tomb is here in Jerusalem to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. I mean, David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, whatever you want go back to the synagogue, don't go back to the synagogue, you take this Jesus guy, as optional, you know, whatever. He didn't say that at all. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His promise is for you, it's for your children, it's for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And a bunch of stories like this in Acts, where the disciples, the apostles, are giving this message about Jesus with a sense of urgency, a sense that it's necessary for their hearers, whether Jew or Gentile, to receive this news that Jesus is both Messiah and Lord, that God has made him both Messiah and Lord, and therefore the proper response is repentance and baptism in his name. We get this the first story we hear about Paul telling this message. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem, and from Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. This is what Paul did. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. This, of course, Paul had been a disciple of Rabbi Gamliel. This would be like Ray Lewis dropping by your high school football team's practice. You're certainly going to have him talk to the linebackers. So standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, because there were Gentiles, there were God-fearers, people who were not Jewish, but who had been drawn to the one true God through the witness of the people of Israel. Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king. He gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. At this point, everybody is nodding along politely and very enthusiastic about the sermon. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not Messiah. No, but he's coming after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. My brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Why would you need a message of salvation? Yeah, presumably you don't need a message of salvation unless there's something you need to be saved from. people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that we read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed when they carried out all that was written about him. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And so we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Just as it's written in the second psalm, You are my son, today have I begotten thee. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his father. His body rotted away, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see corruption. So therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Why might that need to be proclaimed? Because they need to have their sins forgiven. Through him, through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything you couldn't be justified from through Moses' Torah. And Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe even if somebody told you. This is the kind of message that the apostles had. That God was moving in human history. That God had done something decisive in sending Jesus to live, to die, and to be resurrected. And that this news was good news, but it demanded a response. It was not simply helpful information that you might file away. This was good news... But it was news. Jesus would be so much easier to deal with if he didn't keep telling people to repent, don't you think? The prophets too. But it seems like every time somebody shows up, they think they got it together, what does Jesus say? Repent. Turn. He gives plenty of words of comfort to the people who are already a mess, people who come to him not thinking that they have it together, the people who come to him in humility and in need and desperation. Jesus is infinitely gracious and merciful to those who know how desperately they need his grace and his mercy, but to those who come to him thinking that they are on equal footing, those who come to him with arrogant hearts, he has some of the best put-downs in human history. And so I think that because we as evangelicals are, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, people of the book, because we are Bible people, because we do hold Scripture to be so authoritative for us, I think... It's not only because we have proof texts like, ye must be born again. But it's because we see the pattern demonstrated for us in the scriptures. By Jesus himself and by his earliest followers. That the message of the need to repent, the need to convert, was always on their lips. Now, what we have to do with spreading this message is what we're going to talk about next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you do not leave us in darkness, that you do not, not leave us in the shadow of death, but that you bring your light and your life into our darkness, into our death that through your death, we may join you in being raised to new life. We pray that however uncomfortable or unpopular this message of the need to repent is, that we would never lose hold of it. You would keep us always faithful to the word that you have given us. In Christ's name, amen.